Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. What's going on, Sister Majda? How you been? Alhamdulillah. Nice to have a chilly morning in Tampa. Yeah, I'm actually, as I'm sitting here, it gives me some uh, <laughs> some really old memories. I feel like I'm in the principal's office. I'm sitting in a, a little office, student desk. My office, most kids weren't in trouble. Yeah? No, that was across the hall, vice principal. He was in charge of uh, discipline. Yeah, yeah. I actually, when, when I was in seventh grade, I, I never went to your office. You know, because you were the, I went to Brother Mahmoud's office yes, when I was a child. That's, that's not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it was just a couple times. We can we can dive into why I went into that, but, but first, I just want to start with a question for you, if you don't mind. Um, I I know you as a principal, as a person that was always like involved in uh, uh, private Islamic schools. Is there anything else you did before that, or what's your undergrad degree? The original intent was go to medical school. Okay. So I have my degree in um, biomedical sciences, biology, minored in French. Hmm. started medical school dropped out because i had four kids in five years and decided that wasn't going to work out for me but i wanted to be in the health field so i did my master's in public health but in the process we started a school in tampa so our kids would have an islamic school and that's where allah decided my path was okay um was this in tampa too tampa i graduated from university of south florida okay my public health degree and then the first school was Universal Academy, um, ninety-two. Okay, so how did you? How does that branch you into becoming a principal? I became principal by default. The original intent was to start the school. We hired a principal. No, no, before that, right? So, so you graduated with public health. What happens right after that? I actually graduated after we started the school. So my son was in, I had a son in second grade and a son in kindergarten in mm-hmm. public school. And I told my husband that third grade, they had to be in an Islamic school because of my experience in public school. I didn't want them going through public schools. Mm. And I told him either we had to move somewhere that had a school or we had to start a school. And in, in, you're in Tampa at this time. Tampa, and, and there's no Islamic there's school. There's no Islamic school, but there was a group of um, families who had started an Islamic school on paper. Mm. It was the name. There was a corporate documents but they didn't actually know how to start it. So they had some money saved, and I told them, you give me the money, we'll start the school. Um, and between February and August, we had 95 students. What year is this? 92. Mashallah. We opened okay. August 1992. 95 kids, pre-K to ninth grade. Nice. And this, this is what became known as IAF? No, this was Universal Academy of Florida. Oh, UAF is before... They I, actually, yeah. this is our history as Muslim communities. Uh-huh. They started off as one board. Um, and then in February 92, I believe there was a board meeting where not all the members were invited mm. <laughs> because there always seemed to be controversy when they got together. And the board split. And so half the board uh, was led by Dr. Samuel Arian, and he started IAF, and half the board started Universal Academy, and they opened on the same day, August 28th, 1992. What was the controversy about? Why did they They just couldn't ways? agree. On they what? just couldn't agree. There was always a difference of opinion, difference of style, um, and one of the board members decided, you know what, let's just have a meeting without them, and we can probably have a more smooth meeting. And wow. It was not really, it wasn't a good thing, but subhanAllah, that's how the two schools started on the same day, and um, they both grew. And neither school could have accommodated all the kids. Mm. So in the end, it's good. it was good to have two schools. It just started out of personalities that couldn't necessarily get along all the time. I hear you. So you stuck with UAF at the time. Yeah, I wasn't involved in the board level. So I really wasn't even aware of 
all that was happening. Um, so we were with the UAF side and uh, we started and I continued my master's program and our principal stayed only one year. Mm-hmm. We recruited a second principal and um, 10 days before the beginning of the second school year, he had a massive stroke. Mm. And the board members looked at me and said, guess what? You're it. Mm. <laughs> and it was on the job training. I had a lot of good people around me and um, we made it work. But that was never my intent to be in education. Yeah. How old were you when you first became principal? 25. Mashallah. You've been doing this for a while, huh? 30 years. Mashallah. Yes. If you can do the math, you know how old I am today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so you stuck around with UAF and then you eventually transitioned to AYA because that's where you were principal when I was there. So I was at UAF for 11 years and then I had four teenage boys and a toddler and mm. I decided it was time to not be principal. Mm. So I gave him my one year notice. We recruited somebody to take over and my job, my goal was just to stay home. Yeah. And then IAF went through some difficulties and um, they heavily recruited me. And after the fourth time of saying no, I'm like, you know what? Allah's going to punish me if I don't step in and, and help them out. Mm. So after a year being out, I was back in and I told them it was a one year commitment and I was there 11 years. So yeah, mashallah. You, you're at 11 years at AYA. At AYA. Okay. But it was called IAF. So when I went, it was AYA. What happened was the political turmoil the year before. Right. The um, school as IAF actually ceased to exist. And the government told them if they wanted to continue, it had to be under a new name, new board, new structure. Mm. So they chose the word AYA. And then they attached American Youth Academy to those letters uh-huh. to make it work. But when I went in, it was AYA. And that, that's when you guys had us singing that song, AYA Tuna AYA. Yes. And, the whole thing. and we had to memorize it and sing it <laughs> again and again. Man. Anyways, uh, it was good times. <laughs> It, it was fun. It was fun singing it. But uh, um, from that era, second that was second grade. Uh, I came back in seventh grade, which was like 2010, I think. Um, there, um, when I look back on on, on my time, I, I was in I was in an Islamic school from like uh, preschool up until seventh grade. Okay. And and this is great because I get to. You know, I get to ha- I get to have a, a principal of an Islamic school challenges this idea. Do you think that private or Islamic private schools kind of put Muslim students in a bubble as they're growing up? No, I actually seriously disagree with that. Okay. Um, we always and I don't know. Uh, usually, with high, by the time they get to high school, there are a lot of experiences outside of the school to get them used to being part of the community at large, but giving them a chance to really build their foundation Islamically so that we're not throwing them out too soon. Um, Here at Bayan, because we're such a small school, until COVID hit, we did a lot of -of out-of-town field trips. So we took Mm. our kids to Boston for five days. We took them to DC, Baltimore uh, for five days, and they would interact with uh, university students. They'd go to museums. They'd meet people. We went to the we met our um, state congressman in D.C. So they're really not secluded. And then most of our kids play um, like competitive soccer mm-hmm. with the local, you know, soccer organizations. They, we uh, encourage them to volunteer. They're not really in a bubble. Uh, I don't I, I really do challenge that idea. And most of our students who we had through high school, they seem to do OK when they leave. Mm hmm. 
they know who they are. They have an identity. They don't just get lost uh, when they leave. But, but do you think there's a lack of establishing ties with the local community? Like, for example, having non-Muslim friends growing up that know you and see you as a Muslim, which then allows us to be part of the, the, the larger fabric of society? So I don't think that's a school issue. That's a parent issue. Uh, we did a presentation at um, Dar es Salaam, hmm. I think a couple of months ago. And we talked about the importance of, you know, even if your kids are in public school, you need to know their friends. Invite them over, get to know them, let them kind of know your culture. And a lot of the moms got upset. They're like, we're not going to invite non-Muslim kids into our home. Our kids can't have non-Muslim friends. I'm like, mm. well, they have them anyway. It's better to have them in your home than have your kids go there and not know what they're being exposed to. And um, I think at Aya, we started hiring non-Muslim teachers. UAF, that never happened. And bringing in non-Muslim teachers exposed the kids to what non-Muslims are like. You know, they can have the same values we have, even if they don't have the same religion but that's a different dynamic right because like i had a non-muslim teacher i think his name was buchanan patrick buchanan but it, it was alan. or alan yeah yes, you remember him Mr. Buchanan. Yeah, yeah yeah i yeah. actually met him a few years ago yeah yeah but that's different though because i never knew him on, on a personal level you know he, he was kind of just yes. the teacher and he was he, he doesn't really espouse his values obviously it's right. an islamic environment i just know that he's a non-muslim teacher but it so. also has to do with the parents. So if your parents live in a neighborhood where they actually go out and meet the neighbors mm -hmm. and you talk to your neighbors and you have conversations, then the kids have that exposure. Um, if the parents don't, then you're, you're never going to meet anybody. And so I remember we interviewed somebody once at Aya. He was uh, American Muslim, very well educated. Mm. And he, he looked like really solid on his, res on his resume. And we always had teachers teach a class. So he picked, I think it was Robert Frost. Um, good fences make good neighbors. Mm. And he was explaining it to the kids. And he said, well, it doesn't really matter for us because as Muslims, we're not going to interact with our neighbors. And mm. we didn't hire him just based on that one sentence. Because I mm. told him that's not what we want. We don't want to teach our kids that you don't interact with your non-Muslim neighbors. We want them to interact with their neighbors. That's what Islam is based on. Uh, but it's, it's a whole culture and community you're working against. It's not just right. the Islamic school. Okay, so your your idea of uh, meshing with the the larger community uh, is that it's done outside of the the Islamic school, but from like the houses and the mess and the messages, right? That's where you're thinking, like neighbors and, and the school planning activities outings. for the students yeah. that are not within the Muslim community. Okay, so we went to Muslim Capital Day in Tallahassee, and they interacted with the congressmen and the, the employees there, and they had to talk to people and and tell who they were. And have people ask. So we had a group of young men who entered a female congresswoman's, uh, well, congresswoman's office. Mm. And she reached out her hand. And none of them shook her hand. And then one of them explained to her why he didn't shake her hand. And it, it opened up a nice conversation. Nobody had ever talked to her about that. Uh, she dealt with Muslims all the time who had no problem shaking her hand. And then these young men told her that, you know, this is why we prefer not to. So they have those opportunities to interact. Um, mm -hmm. They all have to follow the dress code when we travel. So even girls who don't wear hijab outside of school, when we travel, they do. Mm. And sometimes they're really scared to be in public like that. And we had a very nice experience getting off the um, the shuttle at the Tampa airport. As soon as the doors opened and these girls walked out with their hijab, this one lady says, oh my gosh, you guys are so beautiful the way you're dressed. And it just calmed her down and set the stage for a much easier trip for her. She wasn't worried so much about how 
non-Muslims were going to view her anymore. Mm. Uh, and we try and tell them the way you carry yourself, the way you speak, that's going to impact how people react to you as Muslims. If you go in scared and you don't want to answer any questions, you're going to build a wall between you and the, the outside community. And you can't right. because these are the people you're going to be in school with. These are the people you're going to work with. Um, you go to the store with even building relationships at Publix. If you go to this Publix on Cross Creek, we have a very good relationship between them and the Muslim community. Mm. Last year for the first time for Ramadan and Eid al-Adha, the whole bakery was Ramadan cakes, Ramadan cookies, Ramadan cupcakes. Wow. Eid al-Adha, everything had the sheep and the Kaaba on it. But it's because people have started going in and building that relationship. It's not just, I speak to my Muslim neighbors and my Muslim friends and I'm never going to go outside and talk to anybody. Yeah, they might have also realized we can make good money with this. A lot of Muslims in town. Yeah, I talked to the manager several times. I'm like, see all these people in your store? You could make big money. That's how we got him to open an ethnic aisle. It took four years oh, of wow. talking before he would sell fool and hummus and sharia and everything else that wow. that our Muslim community likes to buy. Mashallah. Well, well given that you're you're for this uh, uh, having a, you know ties with the larger community and stuff like that, you're not for isolation. Would you, or why is it, because I know you are, I think you are. Why is it that you would be opposed to Muslims enrolling at public school? I just think they're not ready yet. Mm -hmm. I don't think their parents, most parents interact with their kids enough to where they could guide them if they came across a strange situation. I mean, when I was at UAF, the first year we started, uh, one of the students asked me, I think he was in eighth grade, and he's like, well, you went to public school. Why can't we go to public school? I'm like, well, my dad is not your dad. Mm. You know, in our house, we had uh, a very strong Islamic structure. We had salah, we had siyam, we had open conversations. We read from the Quran, we read from books of fiqh. We, we could go home and have a conversation about something and we had parents to guide us to what was right. The majority of kids don't live in a house that way. Even if their parents know, they don't have those discussions with their kids. They don't mm -hmm. necessarily know how to interact with their kids. And a lot of our families, they may not have that, that knowledge um, to have those discussions. So I don't think every Muslim child will suffer in an Islamic school, I mean in a public school. Mm -hmm. But I don't think a lot of our homes have the foundations in them or the communication in them where they can support their kids. You should probably unplug No, no, it's fine. Yeah. Um, I also think a lot of parents don't know what's in the public schools. Mm. They don't even know what to expect. Uh, for me now, the worst thing that is confusing for our kids is the overt push towards gender fluidity. Mm -hmm. And you're almost wrong if you don't fit into that category. Uh, and I don't think our parents talk about that with their kids to know who they are and what they are and what they believe and what Islam teaches. Um, to be in that kind of uh, atmosphere. But okay, so so you're worried about the not so practicing families that are enrolling at public school that or aren't practicing families who don't communicate with their kids. Okay, or don't know how to, you know, oh, ask those questions or talk about those topics when they come up. I just believe that because we went through public school, I yeah. was in public school K to twelve, mm -hmm. and the whole time we were in school, we wished we had an Islamic school, just yeah. because we didn't want to always be so different. Okay. But isn't being different sometimes a good thing? Uh, it, to we, show we were strong enough to maintain our identities. Yeah. 
but we also saw a lot of kids in our schools who were not. I mean, we were the only openly Muslim kids. Yeah. There were kids named Muhammad Ahmed and whatever, but they didn't fast in Ramadan and they never prayed Duhur and they, if you said salamu alaikum, they wouldn't respond. They didn't want anybody to know they were Muslim. Mm. So we were the openly Muslim. Yeah, you had no choice because of the hijab and whatnot. Um, well, we chose our family. You know, our parents made us strong enough to be proud of who we were. It yeah. didn't bother us. Anytime we had a presentation in class, we talked about how it tied into Islam from the Islamic perspective. But a lot of people didn't have that strength. And when my sons were at Tampa Palms, they had a friend who... He'd ask his mom to drop him off around the corner so nobody would see that she wore hijab. And wow. every Ramadan, he was on a diet. He wasn't actually fasting. So <laughs> we, we saw that most kids didn't have the strength to do that. And our goal is that when they finish high school, they have enough knowledge and enough strength of character and enough, uh, you know, self-esteem self and, and confidence in their identities that anywhere they go, they'll be fine. So we don't shy away from talking about any topics. Um, and one of our big goals before they finish high school, it's not actually a goal, it's a graduation requirement, is they have to do dawah tables. They have to go out oh, wow. and answer questions. But before we put them in that situation, we want to make sure that we have that conversation with them. We can play the devil's advocate and put them in a really awkward situation where they have to either come up with an answer or, or know to say, well, you know, let me check and get back with you. Mm -hmm. But not where they totally disintegrate and lose um, their identity because they're put in a bad situation. Okay. So one of the one of the reasons then you're saying for, for an Islamic private school is to, you know, foster an Islamic environment so that kids grow up with confidence to be yes. active Muslims in society. Is there any other reason? Is there... Because you want to be um, able to teach Islamic studies in Arabic or... So it's it's even when you go back to... Uh, I mean, there's so many ayat and ahadith that talk about your friends are who determine who you'll become and choose your friends wisely. And mm -hmm. if you go into a polluted environment, you end up coming out a little bit polluted no matter who you are. So we just... it's it's Islamic schools, I think, build that shield that's going to protect them from whatever comes their way. And it's just... It makes them stronger. Kids in middle school are not as strong as kids in high school. Kids in elementary haven't had as you know that chance to to build that that strength. Um, and we say they're the same. They're all Muslim, but our kids are so diverse. It's not. They're not really this. I mean, they have their own differences and diversity within the school. Mm -hmm. uh, even schools of thought and and you know what they practice maybe outside may be different from one family to the other. But the basics of. Um, what does it mean once you say la ilaha illallah? What does that mean for your life moving forward? And helps them make those choices. And I just, I believe in it completely. I know not everybody can put their kids in Islamic school, but I think if they can, it's really the best solution for our kids. As long as it's an Islamic school that's going to foster that environment. I got you. So what you're hoping for, what you're shooting for, is to facilitate like a friends group or a friends network that sticks with them? Yes, and that's what we've seen. So my son, my oldest son graduated from UAF in 2001. It's been 21 years. Mm. They still have very strong friendships. So when they got married, they went to each other to other's weddings. When they had their aqifas, they all were there. Um, when they have a problem come up in their life, they're there to support each other. It does provide a lifelong support network. Um, and it also teaches, subhanAllah, if 
when people grow up just within their cultures and then they're all in public school or they're in schools that are very segregated ethnically, which a lot of communities have, they don't even learn how to get along between different cultures. Mm. So our students, they're very comfortable between African-American and Pakistani and Middle Eastern and American Muslim. I mean, it's just they've, they've been in that environment now that those things don't matter to them as much as they did to people two generations ago. I gotcha. Okay. H- how else does like an Islamic school differ from a public school, a regular public school, other than, you know, the Islamic studies in Arabic? So it's not Islamic studies. It should be the whole environment. Right. So that, that's what I'm trying to understand. What, what else so changes? So in every class you teach... So they're going to go out and they're going to learn about the Holocaust. They're going to learn about evolution. They're going to learn about LGBTQ community. They're going to learn about everything out there. We want to give it to them first from an Islamic perspective. Okay, so what changes? As far as what? Like, for example, the science class. How Are you guys teaching evolution in an Islamic way? What changes there? So I teach evolution. Okay. And I've not hired biology teachers in the past because they said evolution is haram. Mm-hmm. So we go back to always the def. What is evolution? It's change over time. And as a Muslim, we are required to reflect every day on what we did and what we could do better. And so if we're not evolving, we're going backwards. We're not, we're not becoming better people. And we talk about evolution between within a species and evolution bet- from one species to another and, and describe the difference between that. Mm-hmm. And we talk about even, I mean, even Darwin, there are so many scientists now who don't agree with his, with his theories, but, but we don't not teach something because it's controversial. Okay. They need to hear what's controversial from us before they hear it from somebody else. Yeah. And then they develop their own thought process. So it's not like, okay, this is what we're teaching you. This is what you have to always say. You can come up with anything you want as long as you can provide support for what you're saying and there's basis in Islam for what you're saying, you can have a very different opinion than mine. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be the same as long as you can support it, Um, which is another thing, the madahib, where you can have wars or fights among people because they're from a different madhab. We explained to them that all of the scholars were students of each other. None of them was against another one. They just were in different circumstances, different times. And we try and give them those backgrounds so that in the end, you can pick your madhab. Yeah. But you need to understand that the other madhab are just as valid. And you can't tell somebody they're wrong just because they don't follow what you specifically follow. So it's it's a process, but there's a lot of, there has to be a lot of discussion. Um, and we have to each have a good background in what we're talking about and be able to find people who know more than we do if we're not able to answer questions. But we have this thing called, um, there's cross-curricular connections, and then there's the God-conscious connection that Mm -hmm. we try and instill at Bayan in every class where you have to always tie it back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's nothing that's separated from that concept. I got you. So I think the Darwinian version of evolution is that Adam or mankind and apes have a common ancestor. Yes. What's the Islamic version? That within a species, well, we believe that Allah created every species independently mm-hmm. um, based on the Quran and Sunnah. But within a species, there are evolutionary changes depending on where they live and where they don't live. My argument has always been, if apes evolved to man, why do we still have apes? Mm-hmm. 
why didn't they all evolve if that was the normal progression of things? And and most scientists do not will not tell you that ape an ape will become a man. We have common features just because of what, what our tasks are in life. But within a species, there's definitely evolution based on survival of the fittest. And it doesn't happen as much anymore because healthcare and science have made it possible to survive with weaknesses. And before that, if, if you couldn't run fast and get away from the wild animals, you just didn't survive. And the people who ran the fastest had the most offspring because they lived to have kids. So it's just changed over time. The, the concept of evolution, people are not evolving as much because there's so many tools that prevent you from just dying off if you have a weakness. Okay. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is microevolution is what you agree with rather than macroevolution. Like you, Probably. you think that features of a human would change, but not the entire human Race, would change. Or even cockroaches or lizards or right. any, any species will evolve over time unless there's a way to protect the weak ones from dying off. I gotcha. Okay. Well, we can jump from evolution then. <laughs> How do you teach LGBT in the classroom? Because that sounds like a fun topic. Always. <laughs> so I, I don't think I've ever taught it personally. In Islamic studies, they do cover it. Mm -hmm. um, and there is the very uh, strong argument from the LGBTQ community that it's something inborn and that you can't fight it. Um, and we look at a lot of things that might be inborn. Maybe you have, uh, you know, you, you can't see as well. You have a heart issue. You have cancer. A lot of things are you're born with, but it doesn't mean you just allow them to, to go. Mm -hmm. Um the LGBTQ, if you are born homosexual with ten, those tendencies, that in itself is not haram. Mm -hmm. What is haram and what we believe is the, the lifestyle that you choose afterwards. And so there's that, that difference. I mean, historically in Western Europe, just being homosexual was illegal mm -hmm. and was punishable by prison. Just having that tendency does not make it haram or punishable. Um, and we tell our kids, we may disagree with, you know, 90% of the people out in the community. It doesn't mean we disrespect them. We don't yell at them. We don't curse them. Mm. Um, we respect them, but we don't have to agree with their lifestyle. Same thing with adultery or drinking alcohol. We don't um, agree with it as a lifestyle, but we're not going to go out and, and, uh, and start cursing people in the street. And there's lawsuits that came up a couple of years ago about the baker who wouldn't bake a cake. Yeah for the, uh, the gay couple or the restaurant who wouldn't serve you. And I just thought it was strange because we had a restaurant for about a year and it's not like you ask people, is the lady with you your wife or is she your girlfriend? And if she's your girlfriend, I won't serve you. Mm. So we don't, we didn't, you don't mistreat people based on their lifestyle choices. You just don't make that choice for yourself. Um, it's, it's, they're, they're difficult topics. Yeah. Um, and now it's even it's even more difficult. You have kids as young as three, four years old who are going through um, transition from being a boy to a girl or a girl to a boy. Mm. And you have to explain to kids, well, I played soccer with her last year and now she's a he. And how do you explain it to a four-year-old that... But, but they're topics that we're having to somehow discuss because it's real life and they're, and they're going to be faced with it. You can't just say, well, I'm not going to talk about it. Um, yeah. Theoretically, if you had a student enroll that was Muslim that also identified as gay, would that go down okay? So this is the, and it deals with, um, we've had students who are not Muslim who join the school or staff who aren't Muslim. So oh, interesting. Even, even if they're not 
adhering to what we believe, as long as it doesn't become a focus and as long as they're not trying to recruit people to their side, Hmm. then it shouldn't be a problem. So as long as they're not turning other students gay. Or behaving in that manner in school. I got you. Where the boys are befriending the boys and trying to, you know, uh, have a relationship. Uh And, And normally, if you don't flaunt it and talk about it, nobody's going to know about it. I hear you. And there are a lot of faults that we all have that we just don't talk about. Mm-hmm. We try and work on them and we deal with them. Um, but there are people in Islamic schools who may have all other kinds of problems. Maybe they're a chronic gambler. Maybe they maybe they drink. Maybe they eat pork sometimes. You know, there are we don't ask about those things. Yeah. And as long as you're not recruiting people to your side or openly engaging in that activity, um, it shouldn't be a problem. I mean, we can't, I honestly believe we really just can't put walls between us and say, that's, that's a bad person. We don't talk to them mm. because we disagree with so many people all the time. It's just, we're not going to promote it. I hear you. Um, so that's interesting. So you, the curriculum is almost the same then as public schools. You probably just, we just integrate Islam into it. And try and have them, you know, see it from an Islamic perspective. And I, I was at when I was at Aya. Um, there are a lot of authors whose books I tried to bring to the library, but because they were uh, Jewish or Zionist, or I was not allowed to have their books in the library. Not allowed by the board. Yes, but it was my belief that if kids don't learn about it through us we don't know how they're going to learn about it. And a lot of times when you read about other people's cultures or beliefs or political leanings, it helps you understand why they do what they do. For sure. Um, It doesn't going to mean I'm going to convert them to become Zionists. That's not, that's not the goal, but a lot of authors that I read, you learn about the Jewish faith and you learn, you see what's similar between our beliefs and their beliefs. And then you learn about the political politics and how it became and how, then a lot of people who were Jewish and pushed for Israel, once they saw the the things that were happening, they no longer supported the politics, but that didn't make them less Jewish. Right. Um, when we were there, we weren't allowed to talk about Israel as a country. It was Palestine. And I used to say, well, you know what? No matter what we call it, it's still Israel. That's not going to change. I may not agree with it. I might not like how it happened, but it does exist as a country. We can't pretend um, it doesn't exist. This is at A, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here, when I, st- I taught 10th grade English for part of the year last year, and I brought in um, 10 books. We were talking about social injustice and how it was the same everywhere in the world. It didn't matter where you were. There was always some kind of social injustice. Then we tried to you know, find the similarities. Mm-hmm. And I think half the books I brought in were about the Holocaust. And I wasn't sure how the parents would respond, but I didn't get a single complaint. And so we, we talked about it. And... And I tell them it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, anytime you kill or treat people unjustly who are innocent, it's wrong. Mm. It's never right. It doesn't matter who you're killing or who you're mistreating. Um, if they, they're innocent people, then it's it's wrong. And um, that doesn't always work at all the Islamic schools. Not, not everybody yeah. agrees with that conversation, but I think we have to have it because that's what Islam teaches. I gotcha. Yeah. Um... I think one other difference, I, I mean, because I went to an Islamic school that I, that I had, was the fact that we would uh, we would go to Salat al-Dhuhr in the middle of the day. I thought it was kind of fun always to step out of class, you know, just to get that little break and intermission. 
Um, and then there was always like a, a quick uh, halaqa right after mm-hmm. the salah. You guys still do that? We do. And we do the khatira. Um, so we have a scheduled khatira, which is based on the theme of the month and students prepare and teachers prepare. And then we have the unplanned khatira, which is, um, again, not all people would agree with me, but we try not to punish the kids. That's not the goal if they make a mistake. The goal is behavior modification and to help them become better people. So yeah. almost every one of our infractions, you know, after meeting with them, a warning, meeting with the parents, then they have to do a khatira. They have to prepare something to present after Dhuhr. And we never tell the students that this kid was in trouble. We just tell me, you no, know, so-and-so is going to present today about treating people well or about respecting your teachers. And um, we actually got a complaint from one of the students. Is how come this student always gets to do the khatira and not mm-hmm. us? I'm like, yeah, because he's been getting in trouble a lot. But, but they don't fine. know that. They don't know that's the reason. But what we found is when students have to give advice to other people, and they have to research, they have to always connect either a hadith or an ayah to it, mm. they're much less likely to cause that problem again because now they understand it and they're like, well, if I just told those people they can't do it, then maybe I shouldn't do it either. So it, it's it's more powerful than punishment. I got you. How does, on that note, how does discipline happen at an Islamic school versus a non-Islamic one? Um... Discipline doesn't normally happen at public schools. That's, well, I, you I, that's, get... that's the basic answer is there. Okay. There's, legally, uh, schools have really shied away from discipline because of lawsuits. And they don't want to be involved in discipline. And they've taken almost all the authority away from teachers and administrators when it comes to disciplining students. And there's a lot of, you know, we're just going to turn the other way. We're not going to, you know, look at it. Um they have the Great American Teach-In every year. And I, I went to a public middle school in the inner city a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. It was not a pleasant experience. There was no control. I mean, this principal was walking me to a classroom and she was embarrassed because of the language that was happening, the, the behavior, and there was nothing she could do about it. She didn't actually get involved. Um, the charter schools have more authority. And I think that's why a lot of people are moving to charter schools. Florida has one of the highest rates of homeschooling in the country mm. because they want more discipline for their kids. And then the religious schools are able to enforce um, discipline. But again, our goal is more to guide them to what's right instead of just tell them you're wrong and punish them. Um, we really like the positive approach. We highly discourage raising your voice um, Nobody should be insulted. One of our key statements in our mission is everybody is respected and valued. Mm. And we have to remember that even during discipline, that you have to respect and value that child. It's not to demean them or insult them or embarrass them. They have to maintain that respect and value. But that's that's kind of our interpretation after working other places for over 20 years. Yeah, It's what we wanted for our kids because we... We didn't like what we were always seeing and even what we were doing because you're in a certain culture and you just do things the way it's being done. And then you step back and you're like, I don't know, is that really the Islamic way to do it? Yeah. Okay, so let's pick apart an example. I just got sent to your office. I was swearing in class. What happens to me? It starts with a conversation. And swearing is an easy one for me because we do a lot of Quran memorization. And I tell them that the Quran and those words should not be in the same mouth. Uh, mm-hmm. and should not be able to come out of the same mouth and can't be in the same heart. 
And we just have conversations and we go back to Quran and Hadith and, and Ayah and we talk about, okay, you just learned this in Islamic studies. Does this really match what you were doing? Um, and it's, it, it's more of a conversation and we figure out why did you curse? Is it anger? Then we kind of work on, you know, how do you manage anger? What are the yeah. things you do? Um, I've had kids take their pulse in, in my office to see how high it goes when you're angry. And then you got to stay here till it goes down. Oh, that's funny. Um, but it works because that's, you know, that's Islam. You, you lie down, you sit down, you lie down, you make wudu, you pray two rakahs, you, yeah. you try and get that anger out. And a lot of times, unfortunately, they say, well, that's what my dad does when he's angry. Mm. And then we have conversations with the parents <laughs> and wow. talk about, you know, you sent your child to this school and this is what we're going to teach them. And it's going to be against what, maybe you're doing at home so we then do this happened actually at the beginning of this year but i it was a hundredth day of school and i was talking about we're gonna every student has to come up with a hundred quotes mm. things that they've heard either from a teacher something from quran something from their parents something from a famous person just quotes that they know and when i said their parents they laughed and they all started talking about yeah i'm gonna hit you if you do this and i'm like oh let's go back let's go back so i emailed the parents first and then we scheduled a um a parenting a workshop on zoom about uh discipline in in you know in, in a prophetic home how you do it and how it should be done and uh you know and when you're angry that's not when it's time to discipline your kids you got to step back calm down and then yeah so so it, it's coming up and then people start seeing well maybe my parents aren't doing things the way they should and then parents start learning so it, it's supposed to be a whole learning process and we try not to put people down because we know everybody grew up a certain way and in certain cultures physical punishment is is okay mm-hmm. and that's how they were raised but the goal is to move everybody slowly in the direction of islam where the prophet Muhammad Sallallahu never hit a child or a woman or never cursed or never so that's our goal to get them to the real islam it's just a it's a process okay and, um, yeah, and uh, and you you only have so much uh, control over the child because obviously he goes back home, and then he sucks up all the he's, <laughs> he, like a sponge. He soaks up all the stuff around him at home, and then he comes back to your environment. But you didn't finish the role play, so I came to your office. Yes, and I was swearing. So we have a conversation, and I ask you about what you're doing and what you're not doing, and then mm-hmm. we involve your parents, and then your assignment is you're going to prepare a khatira. Okay. And this happened our second year, and the parents were very upset. And they're like, that's just going to embarrass our child and he's not going to do it. So I said, okay, he stays home until he does it because at our school, accountability is really important and we're not going to embarrass him. And if he has trouble presenting, I'll be sitting right next to him and I'm going to coach him along. Um, I think he stayed home three days. I think he came Mm. on the fourth day and they agreed that he would do it. And it was a really nice khatira. And this boy did a really good job. And because we didn't, we didn't mention why he was out. We didn't say he's out because his parents refused to let him do this. Um, he came in and he did it. And he was really proud of himself after he did it. And he, we had a student who had a physical deformity and this boy was making fun of him. Mm. And he didn't make fun of him after that. But we also told him that when you make fun of him, you're making fun of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation. And you're making fun of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Is that what you want? No, 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 of course not. And so it's just a lot of conversation goes into it. Um, yeah. And it's got to be really consistent. And we don't bring it up later. That's it. You did it. You're done. We're going to be better tomorrow. It's not like, oh, well, you know, last week you did this and you better not do it again. It just, it, it's a it's a growth process. Um, 
And sometimes it does happen again. And sometimes we're not successful. And we're at a point where we've been in this business a long time. And there are a lot of options for Islamic schools. And if parents don't like the way we do things, and they don't like the fact that we point out what needs to be changed and what doesn't, um, we ask them to choose another option for their child. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't keep everybody who comes. Um, and some people don't like what we have. They're like, you guys are way too... One, one boy said, uh, your students are too halal. <laughs> they don't do the bad stuff. I'm like, that's a good thing. I'm happy. Yeah. But not everybody likes the environment. Um, I, we've, we've been here. This is our seventh year. There are things that aren't even bad words or curse words that we don't say anymore. Just because when somebody says it to you, you don't feel respected or valued. Mm. So nobody will say shut up. Mm. It's can you please be quiet or can you please not be so loud? Yeah. And it's just because, and, and I, the, the first time I heard it a couple of years ago, I actually got on to this girl. And then I came back, I'm like, wait, I, I need to let you know you didn't curse. What you said in any other environment would not be wrong. But here, we just want you to be more respectful to the person next to you. Okay. So what's the escalation playbook? I did my khatira and then I cursed again. Uh, what happens then the next? parents come in. There's a more serious meeting with an administrator. And, and by the way, this doesn't happen very often. It's not something we mm -hmm. see at the school. Uh, by the third time or fourth time, then we ask you just to stay home for a few days. And if that doesn't work, you don't come back. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because I could be we expelled don't... for cursing continuously? Yes. Wow. Okay. Yes, because it's it's not the cursing anymore. Now it's I don't respect authority. Mm. It's gone to another like like chewing gum. I tell people if you you know if you get in trouble for chewing gum, it's not the fact that gum is such a bad thing, but it's the fact that you refuse to follow the rules. rules. Yeah, and we always tell them unless it's a legal issue or a halal haram issue, policies can be changed, and we show the kids the process how you can change a policy. You submit a proposal. You give three supporting you know, statements, mm. why it should be changed. We'll look at it. And we do make policy changes based on students' proposals. You can't just yell and have a fit and say, I'm not going to do it. And hopefully that will help them later in life. You can't get a job and just break every rule in the company right. handbook. Yeah. You have to know there's a process. And if you submit a proposal and you have a discussion and people think it looks okay, then, you know, policies get changed. I hear you. What about like, uh, you know, because this happened to me, two kids get into a fight in soccer. Okay. You know, you get into it at soccer. Is there a chance for them to be like, okay, it's, it's all right. They apologize to each other. Or do they both get suspended? So my policy has always been once your hand hits another student, you're mm. out for three days. Okay. So suspension. Um, even if it was warranted. Mm. So I've had kids who got bullied when they were little and they're just so tired of the kid that bullies them. And I tell them, you know what? This is going to be on public, isn't it? We're going to be broadcast. But but this is the, this is the honest truth. And yeah. I'll tell them, sometimes it's worth it. And I call the parents and I tell them, if your child hits that kid, they may really want to do it. And it may solve the problem, but they will be suspended for three days. And they make that decision. And it <laughs> happened twice in elementary school. And the kid just beat up the, I mean, not beat him up, but gave him a bloody nose. I mean, they punched him. Yeah. And they took their three-day suspension. They came back and they never got bullied again. So mm. it's <laughs> that probably I shouldn't be telling this on in the public, but it but it's true. Some yeah. but they you just have to know there's a consequence, and that's a part of weighing things that you do in life. You know there's going to be a consequence. Is it worth it? 
if you're willing to take that consequence and you think it was worth it, then you can do it. But don't think you're going to get away with it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So that's like civil disobedience. You know, right. I know I'm going to get thrown in jail. Well, if that's, if that's a calculated risk I'm taking and I want to make this statement and I don't mind being thrown in jail for three days, then I'm going to do it. But don't think you're going to get off the hook with nothing because consequences do exist. But sometimes the consequence is worth what you have to do. Yeah. Okay. What about something that's, it's not necessarily wrong, but it's not halal either. Like, so, okay. So <laughs> I'll, I'll give you okay, one. Okay. So I need an example. To yeah. Go on. So, so this happened to me. Um, I got sent to, to APR for this. What's APR? Is that, does it really stand for Arab punishment room? No. Okay. What does it stand for? Cause um, I don't know. A, uh, APR is what we call in school suspension in that old dingy building. Yes. I, I can't remember uh, what it stands uh, yeah. for. I have the book handbook though, so I'll go back and look it up. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I, so I got sent, it was actually, it was after the, the soccer fight. And then, so that's one write up. And then uh, I think I was, I was on premises after hours. I was getting my cleats from the locker room for, for cross country. That, that was my second write up. And then I had my third one because I, I wrote like a, you know, a little love note to a girl in class. Uh, we were passing notes back and forth and then the teacher got it. And so that was my third write-up. So it's not how I mean, no, no. Okay, you could so, say it's okay, so, I'll, I'll, so I'm going to tell you. We, yeah. we do things differently. So we're, we're building a new school, inshallah. If we okay. ever get our permit, you know, this thing is, everything is delayed because of COVID. But if, so we have our plans and it's all been submitted. And what we did, we brought in some educators that we trusted to look at our plans to make sure we hadn't forgotten something. Okay. Um, and one of the people we brought in was Brother Mahmoud. And he's looking at the plans and his first question was, Where's the detention room? I said, Brother Mahmoud, we don't have a detention room. Oh, wow. He's okay. like, what do you mean you have to? I said, our students don't require one. But they will as you grow. I'm like, not if we grow the way we want to grow. So we don't have, we don't have after school detention just for detention. So we yeah. have kids who write over people's desks or they graffiti. It's not just detention. They actually have half an hour of cleaning after school. You know, you made a mess. You're oh, going to clean up. I had a girl writing on her desk in class as I was talking. I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, I do this all the time. I'm like, not in my class, you don't. We got the Clorox wipes and the paper towels. And she had to clean her desk and the three desks next to her. That was her. Wow. So it's not really punishment. It's if you're going to make a mess of something, you got to clean it up. If you're going to make a mistake, we have to find a solution for that mistake. Um, passing notes. It's, it's becoming an issue now in our fifth grade class. And, mm -hmm. and we have somebody coming in where we've scheduled time based on that complaint that came to us that we're going to separate the girls and the boys and we're going to talk to them about, you know, now you're, you're hitting puberty. Some of them have already. And these are emotions that are going to come up and this is what's going to happen and you're going to like each other, but we're not going to pass notes in class. You know, we're going to do this as Islamically how it would work out. And passing notes in class is also disrespectful to the teacher because she's trying to teach and you guys are just... So... It's it's not a it's not a punishment. It's a very different way of looking at um, kids that we didn't really see in the other schools. And even though I was the principal, but again, you you do what's the culture at that school, and we yeah. just decided to build a different culture. I gotcha, brother Mahmoud is is the man that sent me to APR. Of course, so, he was. He I, it's was nothing, brother Mahmoud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nothing personal. Mahmoud, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was his cult. That was what we grew up in. Right, um, right. And my kids now will tell me. You've changed. I used to be much more harsh. We, it was just mm. the culture. Yeah. But when we stepped back and said, okay, we want to teach 
we want to have an Islamic school at all levels. We don't want to just say we were an Islamic school and teach Islamic studies. And we really want to treat kids the way Islam taught us to treat kids. And not even kids, but even adults. Yeah. Um, so our mission statement is very intentional. Every word in there is very intense. Accountability comes up because in a lot of organizations, the higher you up in a th- or you are in authority, the less accountable you are. You can get away with anything. Yeah. And in Islam, it's the opposite. The higher you are, the more you're accountable. Exactly. And so that's what we try to teach the kids. If I make a mistake as the head of school, as a student, you're responsible for calling me on it. It has to be done respectfully. It can't be done in public. I mean, it, there's yeah, there are yeah. ways... But the first year, our parents got upset. You can't tell students to correct the head of school. I'm like, of course I can, because I'm human like they're human, and I make mistakes all the time. And if they want what's best for me, then I expect them to come and and correct me. And we've seen kids do it. And they're comfortable bringing it to us because we don't yell at them and say, how dare you correct me? We're like, oh, you're right. I made a mistake. (laughs) Let's see how we're going to fix it. I hear you. Yeah, um... Just just jumping back to the the, the passing notes thing, um, I just remember uh, the teacher was so interested in what I wrote down. Like I was I was just this young, yeah, just this eleven year old kid wrote something to a girl, and then she saw me, and then I crumpled it up and I tried to tear it apart, and then she took it from me, and she was like, you know, flattening it out and putting it together and trying to see exactly what did Rashid write to this girl, <laughs> and then she gave it to Brother Mahmoud, and I got sent to his office, and he had it in front of him. I was like, oh crap, I'm in trouble. Um, but anyways, yeah, so that, that got me in trouble, and then I got sent to the office. And I was just wondering, like, later on, obviously, it definitely happened when I was in public school, like in middle school for eighth grade and then also high school. Nobody cared. The teachers literally did Nobody didn't. cares. Yeah, yeah, nobody. It's not a big deal. Right. So if it happens in your classroom, what are you going to do about it? Like, is it going to be like... So it's, it's, it shouldn't be that big of a deal because yeah. it is very normal. Uh-huh. And when you escalate it into something shocking... It just becomes a bigger problem. And that's why when it happened, like very recently in our fifth grade, we reached out to our Islamic studies teachers and we said, we're going to have a, we need to schedule a date where we can talk to them about these are normal emotions. We just have to f- channel them in a different way to make sure we don't get into any kind of trouble. Yeah. Um, so can boys talk to girls in class? Oh, they talk to each other all the time. But it's not supposed to be a ha-ha joke talk. But mm-hmm. they, they work on stuff together. They, they communicate with each other. Um, and as adults, we do, I mean, I have male administrators and male teachers and I have to communicate with them and we try and show that there's a, there's a way to keep it Islamic. And so even on our staff, WhatsApp group, sometimes they start and people get tired into the week and you just start putting out jokes and gifts and what what's they're called. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and I have to remind them sometimes that there are men and women on this group and if the ladies want to do their thing, let's do it on the ladies group and you guys can joke as much as you want and post as many weird pictures as you want. But there's a certain decorum that we try and keep when there are men and women in the same place. So that same example, we want to make sure that we give it to the kids so that they know, yes, you can talk. Yes, you can have conversations. Yes, you can work on a project. Yes, you can be worried or concerned for somebody. And we don't want to take that away. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been told by people outside that, you know, when our kids go to college or they're in dual enrollment, that they're really impressed that if there's a girl who gets in trouble somehow or she's lost or she, that the, the guys from her class from school will come and make sure they take care of whatever she needs. So we don't want to lose that, that yeah. brotherhood part. We just want to keep it out of the realm of romance mm-hmm. so that when there is a romantic relationship, it's done Islamically, inshallah. 
Inshallah. So, um, nothing really happens then if they're passing notes. Uh, there's a discussion that happens. Okay. Nobody gets. I mean, it's not. It's not a criminal offense, and it's uh-huh. not any. Um, if it gets beyond that, which we haven't had at, at Bayan so far, um, I mean, we had conversations, and actually, the mom came and talked to the mom of the girl came and talked to the mom of the young man, and she sat down and said, "Listen, uh, they've been communicating," and and I met with them. And I said, "You know what? You guys are old enough to get married." And if we need no people, way they were and the I, fifth graders. No, these were high school. This okay, high okay. School. This I was, was about high to say. school. And I said, if we want, we can plan the wedding. Oh and wow! And they just looked at me like, "We're not looking to get married." I'm like, "Then you guys need to just pull apart a little bit yeah. until you're ready to get married, and then we can plan a wedding." Um, at UAF, we did have a wedding for two 11th graders. Mashallah. Um, I mean, their parents did, but they were very attracted to each other, and we, you know, we decided that, and the parents that if this is what's going to happen, yeah. They should be married. They may not stay married, but they can get married. Um, they've been married 21 years. Mashallah. That's solid. So alhamdulillah. I mean, so there are, we tell them there are solutions in Islam. There are ways to do it. And if you're not ready for that, then you guys just need to pull apart a little bit. And if it's still how you feel five years from now, 10 years from now, then go for it. You know, we're, we're all about having good, yeah. solid marriages. Right. Okay. All right. That's interesting. Um, so just to jump then to... Uh, abuse not abuse like beating up on people but like abuse of their position uh whether it's a teacher or a staff that's higher up at your your school how do you deal with that because i'll I'll speak from personal experience um i still remember this and i kind of have ptsd from it (laughs) i'm not gonna lie it was way back i was seven years old in second grade and um my teacher yelled in my face and uh i'm I'm not saying it because i want pity i'm just saying like i remember it um, and, uh, it was because I had walked up to her. She had an assistant teacher and, uh, she was talking to her and I was, wanted to show her my assignment. I just wrote something in cursive. I was learn, learning cursive for the first time and I was showing it to her and I go, sister Mona, sister Mona, sister Mona. And I'm tapping her <laughs> and she wants to just hit you and, and she, get rid of you. yeah. And she turns around <laughs> and she just goes off at me and she held me by my shoulders and I was like, Oh my God, what just happened? And I go back to my desk and I'm crying. I actually don't remember this part, but my mom told me okay. that I took a sharpener and uh, I you aimed it. Finger in it. No, no, oh, okay. I aimed it. Or it was the the portable one. Okay. And I aimed it right at her head, <laughs> and I threw it at her, and it hit her in the back of the head. And then she said, "Well, I'm calling your dad." And my dad was a teacher at the time, so he came and he calmed me down. I was worried that he would come and he and he would beat me up, so I got even more scared. But uh, apparently, she was crying. I was crying the whole time. I was screaming and yelling. But uh, after that incident. Right. Um, she had a personal vendetta against me for the rest of the year. Yes. And uh, there were there were like, for example, one time we had these schedules and we were all drawing on them. Me and my, my friends and we were drawing snakes on them. She picked me and she sent me to the, the principal's office. What was her name? Principal Judy or June? Hey, Miss June. Yeah, Miss June. Yes. Yeah. And I literally became like best friends with her. I'd see her every week. She's a great woman. Yeah. And I, I kept getting sent to her office. <laughs> And uh, I think Sister Iman Matwali was the assistant. She's still there. Yeah, yeah. And she would take me to the office and she was really nice to me. And she, you know, whenever I was down and whatever, because I was getting kicked out of class, she would cheer me up. Anyways, so I was getting sent and put in the corner and taken because of that one incident. And no one knew about it. I was just a kid. You know, no one. I, I didn't have I didn't have the understanding to, to go tell my parents that, hey, this is what she's doing to me because that one time. So how do you handle cases of abuse by your teachers? It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. Um, 
I've, I've fired teachers on the spot for things like that, especially mm. because sometimes it does get physical and, and it's not, it's not acceptable. Um, so I was, the, I was the kid that was put in the back of the class. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Because I, I just couldn't stay on task because the teachers were terribly boring um, sometimes. But the problem is teachers have to look at what did I do to cause that reaction? Um, and you have to really evaluate what did I do wrong and be willing to apologize mm -hmm. and you start fresh. And that's the thing with kids. You cannot hold it over their head. You have to be able to start fresh. Um, and I tell people, if you make a mistake with a student privately, then you can apologize privately. But if you did it in front of everybody else, you have to apologize in front of everybody else. Yeah. Um, I had a teacher quit because I asked him to apologize and he wouldn't. Wow. Yeah. He's like, if I apologize, then I will have lost my dignity. What? I said, you lost it already. They don't respect you anymore. That's because such an Arab thing. Yeah. Um, if you want to regain your dignity, then you have to apologize. And he's like, I won't do it. Wow. That's insane. And, and, and it's not, we cannot ask children to do what we as adults are not able to do. And so that's really, that's really the key. Um, and our adults are, are, are willing to accept that accountability. I mean, our, our principal, he makes mistakes. He's new and he's made mistakes and he'll send an email to everybody. I'm really sorry. This was my fault. I've mm. got to take the you know the blame on this one. Um, Stradalia, who's the head of the health program. I was having a conversation with her once and she mentioned a student's name and the student was lazy. And another student heard her and said, Sister Dalia, isn't that Riba? Wow. And she's like, you know what? You're right. And and she apologized and, you know, the you have to say something nice about them to make up for what you said. And. So we, we try and show them that it's not just Islamic studies class. We're not just teaching you something. We're actually living what we're trying to teach you. And if we're not, you need to let us know. You need to call us out on it. And um, yeah. it, it's, it, it's, it's exhausting. And you have to stop and really reflect on... I mean, I started teaching fourth grade this semester. We had a teacher leave. And I'm doing fourth grade English and social studies, which I'm used to teaching high school. Fourth graders are a totally different ball game. Yeah. And the first few weeks, they drove me bananas. And I, so I said, you know, I went home and I wrote a letter for each one of them. These are your good qualities. This is what we need to work on. And a few of them I wrote, you have to stop and just breathe. Just relax a little bit. And like, wait a minute. I just told them they have to breathe and relax and do tasbih. But I'm not doing that. So the next day I came in, I said, what are you guys learning in Quran? Let's put it in the background. That'll calm us down a little bit. Let's all breathe and relax. And we kind of found our groove. And, and, uh. We have a much better relationship now than we did when I first started. But you have to take those steps. It, it doesn't just happen. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, obviously that would make someone like school if they know that, you know, when someone else screws up, they're, they're also accountable. Because when I, after that screw up, obviously it left my memory. I was seven years old. I'm not, I'm not still thinking about what happened right. two weeks ago. You know, I've completely moved on. But somehow I'm still getting in trouble. Yes. Like I go to the bookstore or not the bookstore, the book fair uh, and... I'm with four friends. We all come back late. Everyone sits down. I go to the corner. I'm like, what in the world? Like, what did I do wrong? And I'm standing in the corner thinking, what is wrong with me? Why does this school hate my guts? SubhanAllah. You know? And so um, I feel like if someone is disillusioned at that age, you know, it probably... And it impacts you forever. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's why I'm messed up. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm kidding. kidding. No, no. And we tell, I tell the teachers, all of your kids, you have to love all your students and they have to know you love them. And sometimes we forget. Yeah. So I'll go up to kids and I'll just say out of the book, you know, I love you, right? 
And they kind of look at you. Yeah, we know. But you have to actually let them know because sometimes you will lose your temper. I mean, we're people. We lose our temper. We might say something. But if they know it's coming out of love and that you're going to come back and apologize later, then it's so much easier to deal with than if they're not sure. I mean, I had one student. He was new. And I told him that. And he's like, yeah, I don't think they loved me at the other school where I went. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) But it's really important for kids to know why we're doing what we're doing it's not enough just to do it we have they have to know the why behind it yeah i got you um and i apologize (laughs) no no i think second grade was was probably the worst year and then seventh grade was a lot of fun uh the the field trips we went on and the stuff that we did and were you on the paintballing field trip did you go no 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 yeah i didn't get to do that we had a water balloon fight on aid and that that was fun um but um other than that what made you transition from Aya to Bayan? Were, were there ideas that you had that you couldn't do at Aya? That so you... we were doing really well at Aya um, for about nine years. I think things were going really well. The community didn't all agree with what we were doing. And so it was like a constant, I don't want to say a battle, but we really believed in the importance of Quran and Arabian Islamic studies. And a lot of parents, their focus was math, science, English, social studies. And if we have time, our kids will work on their Quran and their Arabi. And so it was, we'd always say two steps forward, one step back. Two, yeah. But it was something that we felt we could see the product and it was something we were worth investing in. Um, the last two years, I think the the, the board changed a little bit and uh, what they were looking for wasn't as much what we were looking for. And then by the end of that year 11, all of the administrators and I decided that it really wasn't where we felt we could have the greatest impact and mm-hmm. we all left. So administrators, is that teachers or? No, principal, vice principal, brother Suhail, brother Mahmoud, oh, okay. sister Dalia and I, we all left. Okay. And because you couldn't embark on. Um, there wasn't that push for excellence anymore. Mm. You know, like mediocre was okay. We just want everybody to be happy. And Islamically mediocre didn't, work for me and our mission statement said academic excellence and so if we and our kids could do it they had that capacity Mm. um and then the islamic guidelines weren't the basis anymore for our decisions we were told you know that's just you know we're being a little too islamic oh interesting and that's that's fine you know some schools are better still than a public school if you're in a good environment it's safe environment but we wanted all of our decisions to be based on Quran and Sunnah on Islamic principles. And mm. I don't think that there's any decision you have to make that you can't find some kind of reference in Islam to base it on. I hear you. Okay. Uh, so then you had, you, you started Bayan because you have more autonomy. You no, can make so those... I just decided I was done with Islamic schools and I started a consulting business and I helped open other schools in mm. uh, Florida. Um, but in addition to the administrators leaving, we had four board members left. Uh, a lot of families left, the families who really wanted the Islamic uh, background and the Quran and the Arabi and, and um, the academic excellence pulled out their kids. And there were conversations that were happening about uh, maybe starting a homeschool co-op and we could do it in the masjid and everything. And the masjid said, uh, we'll let you use the space, but Sister Majida has to be in charge. Mm. So then I was recruited to work with these 12 kids it was supposed to be a very small operation nice um they told me seven eight hours a week not a big deal you're gonna be fine and um here i am seven years later with 165 students wow 
and working 70 hours a week again. And um, But I love the kids and I love what we do, alhamdulillah. Mashallah. So you have like two campuses now, right? We have two campuses and we are literally driving up and down the road all the time um, between the campuses. Mm-hmm. But our goal is to have one campus once we can build in Wesley Chapel, inshallah. Do you have plans to build a new campus? Oh, yeah. We're just waiting for the approval. It should have been approved in November, but everything is delayed, they say, because of COVID. So everything is done. I mean, it's just a matter of once we get that permit, we'll start building, inshallah. How did you get it funded so fast? So it's not funded yet. We are working on the funding. Um, We've collected over a million dollars so far. Mashallah. We need another 600,000 before we can break ground, but Mm. I'm confident that we can raise it maybe that's the the delay in permitting is until we get the money we don't want to take a loan Mm -hmm. Um, and i think once you start moving dirt people will donate more it's just the property's been sitting for a couple of years and people are like yeah is it really going to happen but i think once it does and um, that will be the other part of what we want to do which is i don't like boxes i think classrooms are boxes and i don't like being in a box i don't think kids were meant to be taught in boxes and so a lot of the new campus is outdoors Um, nice even our outdoor seating areas it's called covered for lunch but we're going to have technology run through it so we can have monitors hanging and we can teach classes outside in the classrooms every classroom has a door to the outside in addition to the one onto the hallway so if teachers are teaching different kinds of plants or they're teaching the weather they just have to open the door take the kids outside show them things come back in there will be some uh six acres of like protected land that we're not going to build on that will be for parks and trails and you know reflection take them out and even memorize quran outside in the fresh air instead of inside a classroom nice is it going to turn into a masjid as well that happens a lot so we will have a musalla inshallah Uh, the first phase it will be um, the size of three big classrooms what we did is we designed it without walls so it'll be an open musalla that will probably 200 people can pray in until we can build a self-standing musalla. An open musalla? No, it's not an open musalla. They're classrooms that we didn't put walls in. Oh, okay. So once we build a self-standing musalla, we'll put walls in and it'll become three classrooms. Interesting. But, okay. Um, it's a lot of money. And it's just, we, there's so many projects going on in Tampa. We're competing yeah. for the same dollars. Yeah, I think Aya just opened a new campus. Huge. Yeah. Huge. I, so, I pray for them all the time. So, so you guys are all collecting from Tampa. Or is this out? Mostly from Tampa. Most okay. of our funds are local. Mashallah. But there's a lot of money in Tampa. People yeah. just have to be convinced this is where I want to put my money. Um, a lot of very generous people in Tampa, alhamdulillah. Mashallah. And there's so many kids. I mean, we could have seven more schools and they'd probably all be full. Wow. That's solid. Uh, so on the topic of segregation, uh, gender segregation in the classroom, did you say you do segregate your students or no? So I've, in 30 years... We've segregated classes three times, hmm. never at Bayan. Um, the only time we segregate is in biology when we talk about the reproductive system. And that way the boys are more comfortable asking questions than the girls. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they're always in the same class. Uh, and it happened at, in previous schools where we did it because parents or the community really wanted to see boys' classes and girls' classes. And the three times we did it, it was not. A success um, for several mean? reasons. So we had one issue with older students. If we had a class of only high school boys, and most of our teachers were women, a lot of the teachers' husbands would not allow them to teach 
a classroom that only had young men in it. If there weren't girls, mm. then the teacher was not allowed by her husband to teach that group. So then we had a problem with staffing. And a lot of the men who were teaching didn't really have training and maybe in this country at the time, or I guess I can put it that way. And they brought their culture with them. And for some reason, it always became like an ego war between the men and the boys. And they were always butting heads. Another thing we found that was interesting was that boys tended to behave better when there were girls in the class. They were always a little oh, bit more wow. concerned about how they looked and how they behaved. And it was just a bunch of guys. They just did not behave as well. Mm. The success was on the girls' side. When we took boys out of the class, the girls did better because there weren't boys making fun of them or saying, oh, how come you don't get that? And you should have understood that. And um, so the girls usually did better. The boys usually did much worse. Uh, as That's we progress, so interesting. It's, it's very interesting, but it's very true. <laughs> um, until we got, I mean, now that over the years, the boys are just better behaved. I guess we've learned how to work with them better. And they don't bother the girls as much. So now the girls excel anywhere. But at the time when we first started, the other thing we had an issue with as we grew as schools, we started to see that after elementary school, there was a big difference in math and science levels in different kids. And some kids were just, they tended to be better in English and social studies, and some kids were better in math and science. And if we had kids in the same math class from three, four different levels, the kids who were weaker felt like they could never learn because they weren't able to keep up. And the kids who were very strong in math and science were always bored because they had to wait for the other kids to get the concepts. So we started having regular classes and honors classes. And in order to have enough kids in the class, you had to have boys and girls regular and then boys and girls honors. Yeah. If you wanted to have separate genders and separate academic levels, you had to have double the number of students to be able to afford to, to do those classes. And a friend of mine has a school in um, California and they have very advanced level courses in high school, but they've segregated the boys and the girls. And one of his concerns was, he said, we're not able to reach that high level of academic achievement in either group. And I told him, as long as you have people of different abilities in that same high school calculus class, kids who can barely do it and kids who excel, you're never gonna get the high level that you want because you're having to cater to the middle. Right. But if you divide them into very high level and then maybe not calculus, they can take a lower level math. And then you add the girls from the other classes and have very high level and a lower level. Then you're going to see those higher level kids really achieving their greatest potential because they're being taught at their level. They're, they don't have to wait for the kids who probably shouldn't be in calculus to figure out what's going on. Um, and the kids who are not able to do calculus can excel in the level of class that they're in. And if you're going to be an English major or a historian, you don't need calculus. You need a lower level of math, but then really push hard on those humanities classes. So just dividing by gender does not give you the results you want. Um, and our goal is to prepare the kids for the future. And when they right. leave our schools, they're not in a segregated world. They have to be able to deal with people from every gender every background and if we're not giving them that training then we're really um 
disadvantaging them. We have to teach them. You can be in the same class. If you're a girl, you can be in the same class with boys, but speak in a way that's respectful, that uh, has dignity in it, and where you can achieve what you're trying to achieve. You can be at the same table and have a discussion as long as it's within certain requirements. And Mm -hmm. that way, when they leave the school, they can work on a team in a company or in a college classroom that has men and women on it and still have something to offer. They're not going to just be sitting silent because they don't know how to interact with members of the opposite gender. So we want to give them the tools that are going to make them stronger in the real world. We don't want to create a world that doesn't mimic the real world. And so even on our field trips, they have to be able, if it's a girl, to interact with a male tour guide in a museum. And if it's a man, to be able to interact with a female director of a corporation that we're visiting. Yeah. Um, that That's our goal, is 20 years after they leave our school, are they successful because of what we were able to give them within our school? Gotcha. So just to clarify, when you say segregation, you're, you're referring to um, segregation of you know, the genders like completely like there's, there's no girls in the class or versus there's no boys yes. in the class, not right. the segregation of in the classroom, girls, one side, boys, one side. So in the classroom, it's either front and back side and side. And that just helps them focus. And with our classrooms that we have now, there's, they're sitting so close together. You really have to kind of put one row of boys and then one row of girls because they, their desks are completely touching each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know at that age, there are going to be emotions and there's going to be attractive, you know, someone attractive to somebody. And we have to give them that space just so they can focus on class and not be focused on the opposite gender. But it's not that they can't interact and they don't um, talk to each other and work on projects together. It's just done, inshallah, in an Islamic context where there's you're not giving them chances to go away from what Islam dictates, inshallah. Well, we're wrapping up the hour here. Um, anything you want to close on? Any closing thoughts? Um, I thank you for doing this. I think it's good no to to record what we're doing. And I think it's important for all the schools to be really clear on what their goals are. Um, and we always tell our staff, you know, we're focused on our vision and guided by our mission. And what I found is over the years people lose track of what that vision was. What did you really want to accomplish with the school? And we start doing things for financial reasons or because that's what the community wants and we lose sight of what it is. So I think keeping our vision and for Bayan, it's preparing torchbearers or leaders for the future. And I always tell the teacher, whatever you're doing, if you're giving an assignment, is that going to help make that student a leader or is it just busy work? And if it's just busy work, don't assign it. Mm. Um, and then we need to be very clear what our mission is. And that's why we, when we created ours, it's very intentional with that respect, the value, accountability, um, ihsan, and always remind each other, what are we doing? Why is it we're doing it? How do we get there? And then there's not ego involved. It's not because I said it or you said it. Yeah. It's for the future of these kids. And what we've said, we want from them 20 years from now. Anybody can graduate from high school. Our goal is where are they 20 years after they finished high school. What are they doing? How are they living? Are they happy? Are they successful? Are they contributing to their communities and to the world? It's not about just the Muslim community. We have to be contributing to the world at large. Uh, And I just think all educators need to focus on those things. And if they're not, they need to refocus and, and 
find those focal points and work towards them so that we don't lose uh, our future. Nice. Are, are you guys, and I just thought of this before we close, are you guys IBAP certified? So we do have IB, uh, AP courses and our teachers go through the certification process and our syllabi are all certified and our kids, alhamdulillah, have been doing well. We mm-hmm. have a few AP scholars in our 11th grade class. Nice. Um, our ninth graders just took their first AP class and they'll continue to take them. I'm IB trained and our principal is IB trained and certified, but we're not going to start an IB program yet just because it's so expensive. It Mm. is a huge expense to run IB, but a lot of the core ideals within IB, we're trying to implement them without being officially an IB school. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up then. Sister Majda, I appreciate your time. You're quite welcome. And uh, thank you for your perspective and uh, all the work you're doing in the Tampa community and Islamic schools at large. Alhamdulillah. Jazakum. 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 Jazak